0: Live from Red Bull Studios, New York. Hey, hey, everyone. You're now tuning into the Top Rank podcast. This is Marcel, And this is Isabel. And we're your hosts and also editors at Top Rank magazine. So for any new listeners out there, our podcast is an offshoot of Top Rank magazine, a publication based in Brooklyn that profiles women of diverse backgrounds who are driving, shaping and challenging the world around them. We try to think of our podcast as a process-oriented
1: research platform grounded in conversation. So we want to work in collaboration with our guests and listeners, and we hope to create a flexible knowledge production outlet that is exploratory rather than being prescriptive or conclusive.
0: So the recent outpouring of public concern over the rise in opioid addiction has gripped the media as well as policymakers across the United States. Over the past decade in particular, abuse of prescription painkillers such as OxyContin and Percocet has come to affect over 2 million Americans, leading to uh, a subsequent quadrupling in overdose fatalities and making the United States the biggest consumer market for pharmaceutical opiates, according to the National Institute on Drug Abuse.
1: Opioids are drugs most broadly used to alter the way that physical and increasingly emotional pain is experienced and perceived. This class of drugs, which includes not only semi-synthetic prescription meds, but also substances like heroin, opium, morphine, and synthetics like fentanyl, works by interacting with the opioid receptors in the nerve cells in one's brain.
0: So opioid abuse is is not necessarily a new problem. Um, The drug opium that derives from um, the opium poppy plant has roots in ancient um, India and China. During the mid 19th century, England and China actually went to war over the issue of of unrestricted opium trafficking. As early as the Civil War, another opiate morphine was used to treat ailing soldiers who soon became addicted at staggering rates. And by the late 19th century, heroin was made commercially available and was marketed as a quote, wonder drug by the German pharmaceutical company Bayer, which was its also first commercial manufacturer.
1: Over the course of the 20th century, Through the mid-70s when Percocet came to the market and into the 1990s when OxyContin was introduced, heavy marketing to doctors by pharmaceutical companies led to a huge rise in prescriptions being written for painkillers, which escalated from about 76 million in 1991, so about 25 years ago, to nearly 207 million in 2013. Research demonstrates that the rise in abuse of prescription opioids has also led to a spike in heroin use and related deaths, as heroin is a cheaper and more potent kind of opiate than the big pharma iterations.
0: The recent rise in opioid-related fatalities within specifically white communities in the United States has been the cause of a lot of shock and alarm um, for the media, for the public, and for policymakers who, um, as we've been observing, um, have been widely framing the issue as a kind of new epidemic that is affecting uh, blameless victims, happy suburban kids, good people, and perfect students from decent families. Essentially, people who Americans are not supposed to link or associate with drug abuse.
1: Of course, drug addiction is a tragic and highly complex social issue that requires deliberate and comprehensive treatment and social service solutions. Yet in the United States, drug, drug epidemics have historically been addressed by using harsh and putative measures, most notably the war on drugs in communities of color, which was initiated in the 70s by President Nixon and, and was developed and intensified for decades to come by Ronald Reagan and by Bill Clinton. So the way in which w- the white opioid issue is being dealt with begs the question which we have been asking again and again, whose lives do matter? And how are the current media narratives in this issue and concurrently in policy efforts being informed by intersecting race and class biases?
0: Of course, there's a long-standing history in the United States of racialized moral panics about drug use, especially by way of uh, precisely um, discriminatory media representations. You know, from the 19th century stereotype that depicted Chinese male laborers in San Francisco as dangerously being able to seduce white women in opium dens, the association made between Mexicans and marijuana and the importation of other narcotics, to the vilified image of black women in the crack mother trope. All of these mediatized portrayals of drug users have come to have not only massive cultural, but also massive public policy implications. And that's what we wanna speak about today. Um, We're really, really honored and excited to have here with us today, uh, Dr. Helena Hansen, Professor of Anthropology and Psychiatry at New York University. Professor Hansen's research interests center on understanding the cultural and clinical facets of addiction and addiction treatment, specifically related to illicit as well as pharmaceutical-grade opiates. As a social scientist, a clinician, a documentary filmmaker, uh, Professor Hansen has published widely about the race and class politics of opioid and addiction treatment more broadly. And in a forthcoming book titled White Opioids, Race in the War on Drugs That Wasn't, Professor Hansen and drug policy expert Julie Netherland take on the treatment of white opioid addiction historically and contemporarily and um, explain the implications of this issue on U.S. drug policy as a whole. So with all that being said, we'd love to to speak with you, Helena. We have some questions for you. And thank you so much again for being here with us today. We're really honored and, and happy about it. Thanks
2: for having me. You've given such a great introduction and overview to the issues that I feel, so I don't really need to say much more.
0: (laughs) Well, that's good to hear that we did our homework well. On that note, note. it's fantastic.
1: (laughs) Okay, well, we'll start with a bit of a broad question, but we'd also Mm -hmm. like to say that this is a rubric for the conversation, but if you would like to take it in another direction, by all means, feel free. So to start off, your research deals most broadly with the relationship between race, class, and the perception and treatment of drug addiction in the U.S., could you tell us more about these particular issues and, and the concerns that have led you to do this research?
2: Oh, well, thank you for asking about that. And I, when I um, heard that you were interested in that, I had to decide how far back to go in this story because my introduction to the relationship between race, drugs, and class probably was um, most significant in the early 90s when I worked for the National AIDS Fund in the cities of New Jersey and Newark and Camden and Trenton and the cities that had made New Jersey the epicenter for HIV among women and children. They had the highest rate in the state and also the state with the poorest cities in the country and the richest suburbs in the country. Ironically enough, healthcare industries made the suburbs rich, insurance and pharma. Um, So I was in this weird intersection where um, I was given through the National AIDS Fund charitable donations from pharma and health insurance to go into inner cities and find leaders who are HIV positive or taking care of HIV positive family members to develop um, community based projects, grassroots projects, and to give them small mini grants to get that going. So one thing that was clear in those days was that there was uh, an enormous racial overlay to HIV. Um, and there were um, really two camps. Um, people who had become HIV positive through injection drug use tended to be black and brown and in these, inner, these city areas that I was working in. And then men who had sex with men who um, often were more affluent, more likely to be white, so I I, was first, I got, had first-hand observation of the racial politics as they played out around the centrality of drug policy reform to all of this and the heavy racial politics. So it turns out that um, that race and drugs is a fascinating intersection on many different levels for me. One is, in this country, the mutual constitution of race and drugs— you already mentioned the history of the racialization of drugs, and you mentioned Chinatown and Chinese opium dens. Um, you also mentioned Mexican, Mexican marijuana, um, and you could have also mentioned the earlier version of cocaine and Negroes, which was cocaine-crazed Negroes in the South mm. um, at the beginning of the, of the 19th century—in the 20th century, right? All, those images helped— to pass prohibitionist policies around narcotics at the turn of the century. So the 1914 Harrison Act that did a lot to um, illegalize narcotics. Um, Strategically, that was passed on the heels of media coverage that linked narcotics to racial um, minorities, the racial others in the country, as you already described. So that's one instance of how race and drug policy have shaped each other over the years. So it's fascinating from that point of view. I, as an anthropologist and a psychiatrist, am attracted to addiction because we don't have a stable cultural consensus about what kind of problem addiction is. Is it a social problem having to do with poverty and um, racial oppression, for instance, marginalization? Is it a moral problem? I spent some time studying faith-based um approaches to addiction among Pentecostal ministries founded and run by former self-identified addicts. And, um, they had a, a, strongly moral model of addiction, but it was in a strange way, very effective for them in counteracting their oppressions, the way that they saw them, um, really challenging what they called, a, a society of disposability, um, that they thought was the, at the root of addiction as just a sign of a spiritual emptiness in in the world, Um, is addiction a biological problem? So I've also swung over to study it from that angle, having landed in a clinic that did the early clinical trials of buprenorphine, otherwise suboxone, now held up as the major treatment of choice in biomedicine for opioid dependence. And overhearing my supervisors in this clinic talk about this one medication, this molecule, is something that was gonna change the culture of medicine because it was gonna allow addiction to be treated in primary care clinics as a chronic physical disease alongside asthma, diabetes, and hypertension. So that's a radically different cultural concept of what addiction is, and, and these different concepts lead to very different kinds of interventions, they lead to very different kinds of public policies, and interestingly enough, they interact with race in specific ways. So, um, so the race and drugs for me has been a really generative um, intersection to look at and to see the way that it um, has determined so much policy has had such a strong impact on people's experiences and their life possibilities on the ground. It's driven mass incarceration in this country, which is another uh, real stand in for race, Right. Um, incarceration increasingly is kind of, is definitive definitive of the black and Latino experience in poor neighborhoods in this country so I found it extremely fruitful as a as a starting point for thinking about um, how cultural symbolism interacts with public policy interacts with the material realities that people live on the ground and their identities
0: yeah speaking to you know, cultural symbolism, media and drugs. We're really drawn to the work that among the many exciting projects that you have going on, which I hope that we could get to talk about um, your work, studying sort of the cultural symbols around um, opioid addiction um, in white communities in particular. And Isabel and I um, read one of your your amazing papers that you co-authored the Julie Netherland titled uh, The War on Drugs That Wasn't. Wasted Whiteness, Dirty Doctors, and Race in Media Coverage of Prescription Opioid Misuse, which is a great title, by the way. Um, But in this article, uh, which we will make available um, uh, to listeners, um, compelling outlines uh, the discrepancies in how uh, American media outlets portray drug abuse in white communities in the U.S. And you and Julie uh, use really memorable phrases in the article, such as narcotic apartheid, Uh, Wasted Whiteness, to really discuss uh, the thematic content of media narratives surrounding white opioid addiction in the United States. So I was wondering if you could um, take us through a bit, you know, what you all talk about in that article, what you argue in that study, um, and what the findings were, because I think it really um, gets to the core of the issue that we're talking about here, which is thinking about media representation as cultural signifiers for who a drug user looks like. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk about that, that research that you did.
2: Oh, sure. Uh, as, I, as I was telling you earlier, I, Julie and I have both been surprised that this particular article has gotten a lot of attention of the many different angles we've written from on this issue because it was, I wouldn't say it was a quick study, But um, for us as ethnographers, we thought of it as um, kind of a one-off exploratory fund study. Uh, We did a randomization of articles in two different years separated by decade, 2001 and 2011, that we chose because they were both turning points in the whiteness of opioids, 2001 being just after the passage of the law that allowed allowed office-based treatment for opioid dependence Uh, And then 2011 being um, just around the time that the original formulation of OxyContin, the patent for it, ran out, and new tamper-resistant formulations were introduced, and the prescription drug monitoring programs were introduced, all things that we now know helped contribute to the white heroin epidemic that followed when... People who had started off with prescription opioids either prescribed directly to them or actually the majority not prescribed directly to them, had gotten them from relatives or friends, Um, when supplies dried up, um, turned to heroin. And actually another layer to this is that places, suburban and rural places that hadn't been um, really epicenters for heroin trade in the past because for many different political economic reasons. Heroin trade has been concentrated in poor city neighborhoods where um, law enforcement has tolerated it and um, neighbors have been too powerless to really intervene in it. And so for many decades in this country... Wealthy white people or non-urban white people would drive into city centers to buy heroin, right, in black and brown neighborhoods. It's not that white people didn't use heroin, but the trade had been concentrated in those places. And the heroin cartels had also found a ready workforce among these largely unemployed folks in these neighborhoods. So that had been the pattern. But what has happened is that the network of prescription opioid prescribers... And the use that cropped up around them after Purdue Pharmaceuticals, manufacturers of OxyContin, cultivated a whole group of primary care generalist doctor prescribers um, upon the claim that OxyContin was minimally addictive, quote unquote, and suitable for moderate pain as opposed to severe pain. What happened was these um, areas that had, had seen this infiltration of um, prescription opioids then became centers for new distribution networks for heroin. So we now see these new distribution networks for heroin in uh, suburban and rural white America that hadn't been there before. Back to the media analysis. We chose those two years. We sampled 100 articles with key terms related to opioids and heroin, um, split between those two years. And we did an analysis of the racial imagery in these articles. And we weren't at all surprised by what we found. Um, so the, I'll tell you, the findings were simple, and they were predictable, and they were consistent with what we'd picked up just leafing through magazines and newspapers. But it was striking how simple and how, how um, extreme the results were. Almost all of the articles that were describing either ex- explicitly or ex- implicitly using coded language like suburban or mainstream American they were describing whites, were sympathetic in their portrayal and started off with a biographical history, describing the person as a promising young person, um, someone who had, for example, been an athlete or um, a good student um, who had fallen into opioid use through no real fault of their own Uh, either through prescription by a bad doctor or through um, just unwitting peer influence, just experimentation, and had fallen into addiction that way. Without exception, all of the articles that portrayed black or brown people were very, very minimal in their biographical details, almost nothing, and mentioned crime. So crime was the entry point for the story. So it was remarkable how, how polarized these stories were by race. And um, you mentioned some of the terms that we coined in trying to describe right. narcotic this. Narcotic
0: apartheid. So, what you...
2: so, yeah, narcotic apartheid, that certainly applies to the news stories that, uh, that we dug out, because the way that narcotic use was portrayed was so racially distinct. Um, but I, I, had started using the term narcotic apartheid to refer to the opioid treatment system, dependence treatment system. So, um, this is a little off topic from the media analysis that I did, but my entry point for studying whiteness and opioids was that I was working in clinics that were rolling out these new treatments for opioid addiction. And I already mentioned buprenorphine and suboxone, um, And there was such a marked pattern to who was getting this new treatment, buprenorphine slash suboxone, which had a lot of advantages from the standpoint of most most patients. It can be prescribed by a primary care doctor in the comfort of a private office, taken at home. You can get up to three months worth of a prescription at a time and not have to come into the office in between. Um, It's also technically safer than methadone in terms of its risk of overdose from the treatment itself, even though it is an opioid. So there are all these advantages to it in that sense, yet uh, public sector patients, for the most part, aren't getting access to it. This This was a treatment that was definitely designed for affluent insured people or people who could pay out of pocket for a private doctor. And I'll give you an example here in New York City, what we discovered I did a, a bunch of different studies from different angles on who is getting Suboxone slash buprenorphine versus who's getting methadone. Methadone being marked as much more of a black and brown drug and being a largely public sector or Medicaid insured clientele. Methadone, for a lot of historical reasons, being restricted to DEA regulated clinics, separated from traditional medical care, often they have the look and feel of. More of a, like a carceral um, space Um, requiring directly observed dosing in front of a nurse. Mouth checks to make sure that you're not cheeking, meaning um, hiding in your mouth the methadone in order to resell it on the street. Regular urine toxicology tests. So it's a very different experience being on methadone. Um, So that's the, it's that contrast that I was trying to capture with the term narcotic apartheid. But back to the media analysis, um, dirty doctors was a term that Julie and I both came up with to describe the demonization of the prescriber that often took place in the articles about white opioid users. So, And the logic of it that we interpreted was that these were articles that couldn't point a finger toward the user, you know, because that's the impulse in American media and American drug policy, it's to blame the drug user. This is a fault of moral deficit. This person is criminal. This person doesn't have self-control. And in our kind of, um, Protestant society, self-control is everything. So addiction is kind of the anti, um, character. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's, um, it's the antithesis to strong character in our Mm -hmm. society. Um, Because it's all about the individual and the individual's ability to control him or herself and maximize profits and maximize self. Um, So addiction is kind of the opposite of that. And so drug policy has been driven by the imagery compounded by, complemented by the racial overlay. You know, that black and brown people kind of constitutionally don't have that kind of self-control. And that's what makes them responsible for their own poverty, their own marginalization, and unemployment, et cetera. Um, So so back to dirty doctors. If you can't blame this user who is a promising young white athlete or student or mother or teacher, those are other themes that came out of it, out of our analysis, who can you blame? Well, until recently, people didn't really think to blame pharmaceutical companies. I think we're going to come back to talking about that later. Um, So the doctors, the prescribers are the ones to blame. And that's one thing that led to prescription drug monitoring laws is the answer. You know, all of a sudden, if we cut off supplies to these evil drugs, because that's another strategy, blame the molecule supplied by these evil doctors who aren't doing their job in monitoring their patients, um, then maybe we can make the problem go away. And of course, what happened when supplies dried up, people had to turn to heroin and now they're in the zone of illicit drug use and all kinds of exposures that they didn't have before, um, such as HIV, such as a higher risk of overdose, because you don't know what you're getting on the street. So, um, so that's where dirty doctors came from. And then there's another term I'm losing track of right now that We're I think talking you mentioned. About waste Wasted, whiteness. Wasted whiteness. Wasted whiteness. Okay. Yes. That was another sub-theme that came out of this analysis that... These very sympathetic humanizing stories about these white young white drug users centered around this theme of this wasted future. So that was the language that they used. They, of course, never used the word white because in our society, white is unmarked. It's um, the assumed norm, norm. We don't, when we talk about race, normally name the race white. You know, if we're talking about race, we automatically go to black or brown, some non-white identity. So in these, pa- in these articles, rarely was the word white used. There was a lot of coding. I had mentioned suburban, mainstream American, average person, and then photos complemented that. Geography was used. You know, this is someone who grew up in Beverly Hills or grew up in... Um, the, south, the north side of Cleveland so there are these coded geographic identifiers to signal to the reader that this was a white person that we're talking about but the tragedy, so of course each newspaper article has to be built like a, with a narrative arc and these were tragedies, these were stories of the of the um, rise and fall of these promising young people and the tragedy is that their future was wasted and what Julie and I implicitly read into that was that their white privilege was wasted. What a tragedy, this this promising young white person who could have gone on to a wonderful career in corporate America or some leadership position in a nonprofit organization or heading the PTA and being the proud mother of a lot of children. Um, So that was the implicit message. And that's where wasted whiteness came from. Hmm. Did you have anything?
1: yeah, we had one follow-up, actually, um, just to give some more historical um, background. Actually, mm-hmm. we were going to ask about the, about methadone and other treatments, but you've already answered that. So one other thing that we were curious about was you mentioned the, simil- the similarities between the opioid narcotic apartheid that we just discussed and mm-hmm. the legal distinctions between powder and crack cocaine that existed in the 80s and 90s. And we we're wondering if you could just el- um, elucidate that a little bit.
2: Yes, thank you. So, uh, yeah, when when we started this project, this line of inquiry, we we started off by thinking that we probably had a parallel on our hands. So the the distinction between crack cocaine and powder cocaine that you're mentioning um, is still embedded in American drug policy, and it started with the 1986 Anti-Drug Abuse Act under Reagan. That was the one that famously distinguished crack cocaine from powder cocaine and sentencing by saying that one one hundredth the weight of possession of crack cocaine was necessary to trigger minimum sentencing to powder cocaine. And of course, at that time, all of the media coverage around crack cocaine centered on black and brown inner city people It was heavily racialized and powder cocaine, of course, was freely being used among affluent whites. And largely it was was a pricing difference and a drug distribution difference in who got access to which form of cocaine, but these are molecularly identical. (laughs) They're both cocaine. So to make that kind of distinction in law is clearly a racial political maneuver. It was a maneuver designed to punish black and brown inner city people disproportionately and to protect the white affluent user from that kind of punitive law enforcement. Michelle Alexander... um, The author of The New Jim Crow, in her analysis of race and drug policy, calls this colorblind ideology in the sense that race was never mentioned in the drug policy. So tremendous racial harm was done through this policy without ever mentioning race. Um, And that's consistent with our findings in our media analysis about the lack of mention of race in these articles. They're clearly um, carrying a racial narrative.
1: What was your question again? That, well, that was exactly the answer we were oh, looking oh, but for, there, there's actually. A sec- yeah. So there's
2: a part two to that. The part two is that at the time when I started the study, and this was a long time ago now, this was um, almost a year ago now, uh, a decade ago now that I started this study. At the time, there was this big distinction between black or brown heroin use and white prescription opioid use. And to some extent, a little bit of that still carries over. But the new generation, because of what I just described of the transfer from prescription opioids to heroin through clamping down on supplies of of prescription opioids and also the new distribution networks of heroin that have cropped up in suburban and rural white America, that's changing. And what we're seeing now is... Rapid, rapid growth in heroin use and overdose among American whites. and also a very interesting um, gender and age group patterning around prescription opioids versus heroin. So it turns out that even though prescription opioids, um, <clears throat> at least for the past five years, have they remain the leading cause of overdose death in the US, heroin is catching up. Those that are dying from prescription opioid overdose tend to be middle-aged men. Those that are dying from heroin overdose tend to be young women. And we're actually getting into an era now where women are overtaking men as as the predominant group that uses heroin. And this is notable because it's the first time in the past century that there's been an illicit drug that more women have used than men. And some of that is linked to the entry point through prescription opioids, because for many, many decades, women, narcotics-dependent people, especially white ones, have been users of legal drugs. So we're talking, for example, in the 1950s about barbiturates, which were a really huge cause of overdose death in the 50s, analogous to the level of overdose we're seeing now with opioids.
0: What are barbiturates?
2: So barbiturates are also, they're sedative. Um, they were taken as anti-anxiety and sleeping medications in the 1950s, and they were freely prescribed like candy by physicians back in those days to white women who had dis- disproportionate access to regular doctors. <clears throat> so so this is to say that female addiction has always been there, white addiction has always been there, but it's tended to be to licit narcotics rather than illicit narcotics, and the world of illicit narcotics has been male-dominated. Since the current heroin epidemic got its entry point through a prescribed illicit narcotic, prescription painkillers, and since women tend to go to doctors more often than men and tend to go to doctors with pain complaints more often than men, we're ending up with a Female heroin epidemic, which is kind of fascinating. White women, young white women. Um, and I think this is part of what's feeding this frenzy now, this um, real panic about the future of white America. And I think part of it is the image of the young white women, woman who is supposed to be the reproducer and caretaker of the white nation. So, you know, the the images of this woman who... Either is a mother or is supposed to be a mother, and her trajectory to, you know, bearing and raising the the new white generation is taken off course because of her addiction, and I think this is feeding into this panic about
0: white futures in the U.S. Or well, right that apparently the white American population is in decline, or the or the birth rate. Could you talk about that? Yeah, that? so I I could I could elaborate on that. Okay, so.
2: This was in the research, in the epidemiological research literature for many years, the idea that these accelerated rates of opioid overdose were um, hitting white Americans harder than other groups. But the landmark article on this that was cited everywhere came out a year and a half ago. It was written by Anne Case, an economist at Princeton, and her husband, Angus Deaton, who also at Princeton Econ economics department, who's a Nobel laureate. That's part of what got it so much attention. And they did an analysis showing that the life expectancy of U.S. whites had declined by five years over the past 20 years. The life expectancy of almost every other racial group, except for Native Americans, had gone up in contrast. Most of the decline in life expectancy was due to opioids, either through unintentional overdose or suicide. So that's where the punchline, you know, whites are dying of opioids came. And these results came out just before the last presidential election. And there's some people who say that this discourse and this panic about the future of white America that this article really fed into may have had a big impact on the election results. It turns out that the states that are most heavily affected by opioid overdose also were the states that disproportionately voted for Trump. So this whole idea that white Americans are under threat and white privilege is under threat, I think that the opioid overdose coverage fit into that into that concept. That's really
0: fascinating. Wow. So I guess, yeah, the, the main topic of, you know, opioid and addiction more broadly is this idea of pain, right? Pain as a human experience. Um, and I think... What we're interested in, uh, particularly as it relates to opioid coverage, um, is how, um, and I think your article speaks to this too, um, how this opioid coverage and I guess coverage of drug addiction more broadly in the United States uh, enforces distinctions between white and people of color's experiences of pain. Um, and I, th- Isabel and I were talking about this and we, and we think it kind of leads to a pretty harrowing question, which is... Does racism require the perpetuation of certain types of, like, social theories on pain that make it seem as if people of color don't feel pain or don't feel pain as much as whites do? Um, Kind of just thinking about the history of people of color in this country, what we have and continue to endure. We're interested in, in hearing your thoughts about Um, from a a cultural and perhaps anthropological perspective, kind of ideas about pain, but also in your experience as a medical practitioner in the medical field too, have you observed um, biases and how pain is experienced? We came across some articles that talked about even racial disparities in the distribution of prescription opioids Mm -hmm. linked to prescribers not thinking that people of color experience pain in the same way. So I was wondering if you could speak to that question a bit.
2: What a great question. I, I love it because it works on so many different levels. And pain also works on so many different levels. So there's the metaphorical level of right. psychic pain, um, intergenerational communal pain, um, the pain of racial oppression, poverty. And then it also works on the level of an actual physical experience. So, And there are linkages between those two levels. So I, I really like the question. And... Let's see, to begin, um, you are correct that historically there have been all kinds of theories leading back to the beginning of slavery in this country, African slavery, about um, racial differences in the experience of pain. And you put it in a, such an interesting way, is it almost necessary to have that for a racist hierarchy to take place? Certainly, if you have a class of people that you're consigning to forced labor, it doesn't help to be preoccupied with pain that that force and that labor is going to cause those people. So there's an implicit insensitivity to their pain in that you can't really maintain the system without that. And you're right. In fact, there have been over the centuries, many different explicit clinical medical theories about the lower, the higher tolerance for pain among Africans and uh, On the other side, there have been some, it's kind of worked both ways because there have been some other groups that have been seen as less tolerant of pain. I was just reading um, a history of pain that pointed to this image, turn of the century image of Southern Europeans and Jews as being less tolerant of pain and complaining about pain and therefore not being good contributors to society. So it works a lot of different ways. But in a way, you're correct. It's sort of built in to the racial logic that would maintain hierarchies of labor and uh, accommodation, right? And deservedness. So deservedness comes into this. So the more recent versions, you're also correct that in the past few decades, opioid prescription has been much more freely given among white patients than black and brown. And there have been several studies showing this. Part of it has to do with ideas about pain tolerance. A part of it has to do with ideas about who's at risk for addiction. And that has worked in very interesting ways when it comes to opioid marketing and regulation, because uh, in my forthcoming book with Julie, what we're arguing is that um, race plays such an integral role in the capitalist logic of pharma marketing that opioid manufacturers took advantage of these racist ideas to get around regulators. So I'll tell you what I mean. With OxyContin, 1996 approved by the FDA as a minimally addictive pain reliever suitable for moderate pain. Up until that point, opioids had been reserved for very severe pain such as cancer, pain such as post-surgical pain, and it was a a real shift in clinical practice to think about opioids as something that primary care doctors would hand out for lower back injuries and things like that. And there's a whole story to how the pharma uh, company got FDA approval involving some very minimal research, three-month clinical trial on terminal cancer patients in which they determined there was less than 1% risk of addiction from this Oxycontin formulation, which was thought to be addiction proof because it was the oxycodone, which is twice as potent as morphine, is in a sustained release capsule. So it, sust- it releases just a small amount in any given time. So the theory was that the person using this capsule wouldn't get the rush that's so rewarding for addicted people. Um, of course, what happened as soon as they got it out to market? People learned to crush and snort or inject the contents of this capsule. So it was nonsense. And there was a lot in the air. This is the decade of the brain, a real heavy emphasis on neuromolecular bases of pain, you know, that it was a biological process and condition. So drug researchers had completely forgotten about the social context of drug use. They didn't even bother to look at it. It was all about finding the magic molecule that would be a non-addictive opioid, right? Or the, the magic biotech. Like a sustained-release capsule, um, but back to the question about um, about pain and race. So back in '96, when Purdue Pharmaceuticals was trying to get the largest possible market for their OxyContin sustained-release capsule, they got around regulators such as the DEA, who had typically been very suspicious of opioids and very restrictive in what how opioids could be prescribed and um, distributed, they got around them by targeting suburban and rural white areas where, and primary care practices there that were thought to be full of nice white people, not people at, dis- at risk for addiction. And, um, and that's one thing that contributed to the epidemic that we have today. We like to joke in the drug research field that this is one of the few instances where racism is pr- has been protective Because black and brown people just didn't have the same access to these new opioids that white people did. But it was was an explicit part of the marketing logic. So race fit into that pretty neatly.
1: Speaking of of protective racism, you recently wrote an op-ed in the New York Times in response to an article that was titled White Death Rates Are Rising, in which you point out that the current drug policy distinctions are also detrimental to whites for reasons that you slightly just outlined now. So could you elaborate a little bit more about why you wrote in and about what you were trying to say?
2: What we're trying to do with our analysis of the opioid epidemic is some, is make a larger point about the harms of racism and racist capitalism to everyone, including whites. And it's something that I and many of my colleagues in health and race and inequalities kind of research all implicitly know that there, there is something about our racist system that is harmful, maybe even on the spirit level to whites as well. We're talking about a country where whites who have means live in gated communities sealed off from everything else. And they live in fear of the other. There've been a number of anthropologists studying this um, racial coding of nice people versus not nice people and which neighborhoods are safe for whites to move into. And this is a lot of the way that, uh, racism today plays out right around who is safe to move into what neighborhood and, um, what the composition of neighborhoods are. Even to this day, racial segregation is something that is largely maintained through housing policies and mortgage plan- mortgage practices. Um, you know, and we're seeing it play out in the form of gentrification in cities right now. Um, but, okay, so to this point of how racism har- harms white people. So it, it, it's kind of been vague how to pinpoint the harms. Um, there also has been this interesting set of studies by social epidemiologists, comparing the United States to other countries in terms of social inequality and health outcomes. So there's this book called The Spirit Level by Richard Wilkinson and Kate Pickett, these two social epidemiologists, that shows that the countries with the highest level of social inequalities, largely measured by income gaps, have the lowest life expectancies and that this relationship holds even in the wealthiest quartile Of the country. So, for example, the wealthiest quartile of the United States population, which is incredibly wealthy, there's a lot of wealth concentrated here, despite all their wealth, they have a lower life expectancy than the highest quartile, income quartile in Japan and several other countries that have less inequality. So, there's an implicit argument there about the harms of inequality. And in this country, that would be a racist system. People don't even live as long. The rich white people don't live as long. (laughs) There's something harmful there. And we could get into the details of exactly how that happens in this country. Much of it has to do with the lack of public health-oriented laws, the fact that we have no gun regulation, the fact that we don't have public spaces that are open to everyone, that are safe, um, and that force gated communities. So, um, so there's that, but we've all been looking for examples of where we can, in a very specific way, pinpoint the physical harms of racism to whites. So this is one of those examples, you know, we can actually show white people are now dying off because of the racism that's built into our system of pharmaceutical marketing and development, the racial imagery in the news, the news, the role of race in drug policy and the way that it works against public health. The way to best see this is to compare the U.S.'s handling of opioids with countries that have had much less of a problem. So let's take the drug that I started off studying, buprenorphine slash or a.k.a. suboxone. The, France is a country that approved office-based use by primary care doctors of Suboxone to treat opioid and heroin addiction in 96. So they were before the U.S. Um, France happens to have a univ- system of universal health care, a much less capital-intensive market-driven healthcare system in general. Pharmaceuticals aren't marketed directly to consumers in the way that they are here. They're bought up by government agencies and they're distributed um, using a pricing system that gives French people access to them. So it's a very different system at baseline. Within this system, Suboxone was adopted primarily as a public health strategy to lower not only overdose deaths, but HIV infection among largely immigrant, low-income heroin injectors. And what they found was in the first seven years of offering suboxone slash buprenorphine in these primary care clinics, they saw a decline in 80% in overdose death rate in France. What has happened here in the U.S.? In the first 10 years that suboxone was marketed and disseminated in primary care offices, the overdose death rate has quadrupled. So there's a big contrast here. And what's the difference? it's our system of capital profit driven healthcare combined with a racist ideology that supports that system why is our healthcare system so incredibly stratified and restricted a lot of it has done with had to do with the racial politics of entitlements and public benefits we're a country that has not wanted to extend health benefits to all We haven't wanted to extend welfare or housing benefits or any of the other kinds of benefits that countries like France extend. What has been one of the most powerful tools for disrupting any kind of consensus that we need benefits as a public? Racial imagery and racial politics. We don't want to give public benefits to those black and brown inner city mothers who are welfare queens, abusing the system, unwilling to work, etc.,
0: could so, you, mm-hmm. I was going to ask about, actually, could you talk about the work that you're doing in Staten Island? Like your, sure. your, your, the research uh, that you're doing there. How are you kind of seeing these issues with the white opioid uh, problem play out in your ethnographic work?
2: Absolutely. And that's a great question because it does lead back to this idea of this crisis of the capital sy- capitalist system that we have here. Um, but just to complete the thread about um, about the harms to whites of racism. So the the end of that thread is that we argue that one of the big impediments to a true public health intervention in this country that would actually stem opioid overdose is the racialized hierarchy of access to treatment, entitlements, prevents public health oriented legislation from passing. So um, in order to address harms to whites, we have to widen the lens and look at the harms of this racist and segregated system to whites directly, because that's the missing link. Whites have also been uh, prevented from getting adequate health care and public health interventions by the system. For instance, suboxone, even though whites are disproportionately using suboxone, in my interviews with Suboxone patients and prescribers, I found that because we have such a, a patchwork system of insurance coverage that changes all the time, you know, our disaster of a managed health, managed um, uh, insurance, managed, managed healthcare or HMO um, system, one of the disasters of this market-driven insurance system is that people are changing insurance plans all the time. Insurance plans are changing policies all the time. And people are left without coverage for suboxone frequently. For a drug like suboxone that's a, medica- a uh, maintenance medication to prevent overdose, you have to have access to it continuously. So I think that's one reason suboxone, as big as it has become, it's a major blockbuster drug at over a, million, a billion and a half in sales in the U.S. alone every year second only to OxyContin, which is about $3 billion in sales every year. Um, so it's a blockbuster drug. A lot of people are filling these prescriptions, but they're not necessarily getting it as prescribed in a way that would prevent overdose because of our fragmented, non-universal healthcare system. So back to Staten Island. So Staten Island is such an interesting place because... In New York City, which has the highest number of opioid, non-medical opioid users of any city in the country, probably just because it's the biggest (laughs) city in the country, Um, of all the boroughs, Staten Island has four to five times the overdose rate of any other borough. It also happens to be the whitest of all the boroughs. It's predominantly white, and it's more affluent, it's more middle class. It's a borough that is ironically dominated by kind of upwardly mobile, largely Italian-American and Irish-Americans who, many of whom have leadership positions in the NYPD police department or NYFD fire department. And one of the theories about how the overdose rate got so high, besides all the things I just described about how whites have had disproportionate access to the new patented opioids, is that these folks are working in professions that go along with some physical injury, and um, what we've seen in Staten Island, which is actually similar to the rest to many other parts of the country, is that there's a middle-class cohort that got addicted to prescription opioids, and these are the folks in YPD and YFD and others who got injuries, got prescription opioids, became dependent. Many of them eventually found themselves without access to, to prescriptions and might turn over to heroin. But there's this other cohort of the young ones, people in high school, early 20s, who began using prescription opioids from their parents' medicine cabinet and then quickly transitioned to heroin from there. So Staten Island has been a fascinating for me microcosm of white suburban America. It's a very suburban place. If you go there, you wouldn't know you were in New York City, right? You have a bunch of single-family homes with manicured lawns and no sidewalks. People drive everywhere, strip malls. looks very much like suburban America. Um, So my team and I started doing field work there. And um, we found a number of interesting things going on. One of them is a very different kind of community and clinical response to addiction than I had seen on the ground as a physician anywhere else. So traditionally, addicted people have been the pariahs among patients, you know, working in many different hospitals. Over the years, I've seen that someone comes into the ER with a complaint and it's discovered they have an addiction history whatever they say is going to be taken with a grain of salt after that. And a lot of what they say is going to be taken as med seeking or prescription seeking. Many of these folks are discharged early as quickly as possible by a staff that doesn't like to deal with addicted patients. So, and and this is something that, um, you know, I treat addiction. And so I have the benefit of kind of long-term relationships with people who are addicted. And they tell me that actually, On many occasions, they would avoid going in for healthcare, even if they thought they had a serious problem because they knew how they were gonna be treated by the staff. So for many decades, this has been the experience of addicted people with healthcare providers. In Staten Island, in response to this opioid epidemic, which has very much been presented similarly to the way I described our media analysis as as an issue affecting young, promising people, high school students, college students, Athletes, star athletes. So it's very much played into this discourse of the threatened future of the community. Community doctors in Staten Island, primary care doctors, have banded together to do some really unprecedented things. And they taught, so what they've done is, for instance, come up with these homegrown kind of primary care based interventions involving family members and their own invented family form of family therapy. Um, spending a lot of extra time counseling patients that they're not reimbursed for because insurance plans increasingly only reimburse for you know, five, 10-minute visits with patients. These are folks that extend their workday in order to take special care of these addicted patients. They go out of their way to get certified to prescribe Suboxone. That's one of the stratifying things about Suboxone. You have to go through an eight-hour certification course, and most public sector doctors don't have any incentive to do that. But in Staten Island, the community doctors are getting certified and they talk about their patients as as um, not only neighbors, but as family members in in metaphorical terms. They compare when they describe their addicted patients, they compare them to sons, daughters, members of their own family. So it's really remarkable to see how different the response to addiction is there. There's not the kind of othering that I had seen as a doctor working in many settings uh, around addicted people. Another thing that's kind of interesting in Staten Island is a whole youth culture around opioids, some of which um, almost glorifies or celebrates opioid use. And I'm thinking about right now, this, uh, this video that went viral in 2012, put out by a group called the White Trash Clan and their name is a takeoff on Wu Tang Clang, the, um, the gangster rap group from the 90s. So, the White Trash Clan did a video based on the song, a rap song, called um, My World is Blue, in reference to the blue color of Oxycontin tablets. And if you see this video, I could show it to you <laughs> actually here, it's fascinating. This video is the inverse of a gangster rap video. So the the lead rappers in this group, one of them is dressed in a business suit with a tie. Another is dressed in a light blue cap with a propeller on it, like a baseball cap with a propeller. And they're dancing and frolicking in pharmacies down grocery aisles. They come outside and um, a fairy, this young white woman with blue wings starts blowing blue pixie dust into the air and all of them start snorting it. And they're basically flipping their noses at uh, law enforcement and talking about how the world can be blue as long as you don't tell your parents. So, I mean, this is in sharp contrast to scenes from gangster rap videos where what's at stake is getting life in prison, um, being killed. So it's it's almost uh, like an explicit mockery and contrast to life in drug trade or on drugs in the inner city. And it's almost a celebration of the white privilege that they have in Staten Island. So that so that that celebration of white drug use is really interesting for its implicit celebration of white privilege. It's also really interesting because it's in contrast to the way that the economists I mentioned that did that study of declining white life expectancy and Case and Ang- Angus Deaton talk about the opioid epidemic in the country. They talk about, so their theory, they're economists, right? And their theory is that it's post-industrial economic decline in the Rust Belt that's driving this and that people are turning to opioids to for solace in a really depressing setting. Whereas in Staten Island, they're... You know, this youth culture is almost celebratory. It doesn't have that depressing edge, although at the root of it, there probably is a lot of anxiety about their white futures and their white privilege and what's going to happen to it.
0: So we have this problem, regardless of racial identity, right, of, of not just pain that people experience, but how people use narcotics to treat to treat pain. So this is, we have this ongoing social problem and I think that what your your article and I think your research more broadly really does is um, offer knowledge in hopes of coming up with actionable solutions. Um, In particular in the article um, uh, that we discussed earlier that you wrote with Julie Netherland, you you end uh, the article with um, a hopeful observation Um, That the disparate treatment of whites and people of color has also demonstrated that, at least for some, uh, a less punitive and more humanistic model of not only representing drug addiction, but also treating drug addiction is possible and is possibly the more um, effective approach. Um, so we were just wondering to, to close this, how do you imagine um, these kind of more humanistic models being enacted um, from a policy perspective? Um, yeah, how do we how do we go forth and try to ameliorate some of these really long-standing problems? I know it's a big question like how do we fix it but you offer some you offer some hope. And we need this, regardless of. I do. <laughs> yeah, regardless of you know who's being affected or how how the narrative is being cast, which is we've discussed throughout this whole episode. In and of itself, is indicative of uh, really long-standing grave issues. But how do we go about um, changing the narrative? I guess.
2: So you've tapped into probably the least developed part of my research, but probably the most important. Okay. Well, we (laughs) (laughs) yeah. yeah, To what kinds of interventions does this lead? And this is the dilemma that um, what we're seeing now is kind of unprecedented in American drug policy, at least in the last century. That we have bipartisan support for policies that are more harm reduction oriented, tend to decriminalize heroin and other narcotics. I'll give you a few examples. One of them is the example that I've spent a lot of my time on, which is the promotion, the federal and state level promotion of Suboxone treatment as an intervention for opioid overdose. And of course the, the fault in that is that it's so commercially driven. The idea is, oh, you know, just make it attractive to the manufacturers to get in there um, to promote it. And we're forgetting about, oh, what about universal healthcare coverage or getting people access to, to providers who can manage that medication for them. Um, But this whole push to get people maintained on Suboxone, that's unusual. It's unusual for Republicans and Democrats to be agreeing on things like that. I'll give you another example that's a smaller example. Perhaps in New York State, we have something called the Good Samaritan Law that was enacted, I think, in 2008. Ironically, the same year in which mass incarceration rates peaked in the United States for black and brown. But anyway... This was legislation proposed by Republican assemblymen in Westchester. What it does is it shields someone who's called 911 in case of an overdose from sentencing for drug possession. That is not a typical war on drugs approach. And of course, you can see which demographic it was probably driven by. Um, More recent versions of that include directives from the federal level in how to intervene with opioid-dependent women. Unprecedently, they're not um, advocating for punitive measures and removing children from custody. They're advocating for aggressive addiction treatment and much more supportive interventions around children and provision of childcare. But still, you can... read between the lines which demographic that's driven by and which lobby that's driven by. Another here in New York State has to do, and this started in Staten Island, actually, programs that are, represent collaborations between health organizations responding to opioid overdose and the police. Setting up, so this is, for instance, in Staten Island, it's a project called Project Hope, which, um, in which the police have agreed and the prosecutor, the local prosecutor, has agreed to hold off on a aggressive arrest and trial in order to allow um, social workers and addiction treatment programs and peer-based teams to um, divert people into treatment. So those are some examples of more harm reductionist approaches that have had bipartisan support in light of white opioid use. The danger... So the promise is that this kind of logic could be generalized to the whole population. These are the kinds of policies that would lead to a much better public health profile, better outcomes for everybody, dot, dot, dot. The danger is that in this country, we've been very good at upholding two-tiered responses. So, you know, before you'd mentioned the, the term pharmaceutical apartheid, another term that I'd been using was two tiers of treatment. One, a biomedicalization of addiction along lines of suboxone maintenance and the blamelessness of having a chronic relapsing brain disease as opposed to a moral failing versus punitive roots. We're so good at maintaining both at the same time. So what the danger is that we would just continue our mass incarceration policy with drug war enforcement in black and brown inner cities and expand this harm reduction decriminalization approach for whites outside of those areas. How to get around that, how to build a broader consensus? So one is to try to continue this line of reasoning around the harm to whites in doing that and not addressing some of the structural roots of the public health crisis, such as lack of universal health care. Um, and that's really important. But I think that in order, we still also have to keep a focus on racial inequality as a part of this. so, what Julie has been doing at Drug Policy Alliance is working with state assembly people around something they call a racial impact assessment that would be required for any drug policy change that's introduced, analogous to environmental impact assessments for laws that are going to impact environment, to keep whiteness and race, race inequality in the public eye and hold policymakers accountable for the impact of what could very easily turn into two-tiered policies drug policies um, and you had also before raised at least on paper you'd raised with me a really interesting question about the lawsuits that are taking place right now there are several states that are filing now filing lawsuits against pharma the manufacturers of the prescription opioids that are driving the current epidemic and it's kind of it's interesting that the state lawsuits, took so long to come about. Pharma was kind of the last place people turned, right? First they turned to the prescribers. Um, Then they also started turning to enforcement against these black and brown outsiders that were the, the peddlers and the traffickers coming into nice white neighborhoods. That was another discourse that we saw in the media. Now they're finally coming around to looking at pharma. But I think that even though I like to hold pharma accountable, first of all, the pharma companies are just being good capitalists. They're just tapping into the way that this system works and their shareholders are benefiting from that. But this is the way that American capitalism works. And they have anticipated these lawsuits because they, like in the case of Purdue, which has already been sued, from the very beginning they knew that they were going to be promoting non-medical use and that they were making money off of a secondary market of people who weren't directly getting prescriptions, right? It's a huge moneymaker for Purdue that so many prescriptions are being written and then sold on the streets or distributed to people who aren't going directly to doctors. So they they built that into their business Mm -hmm. plan, set aside money for the, the lawsuit payout they knew was going to have to take place. And it is such a tiny percentage of their profits. Mm. So I don't see the lawsuits as being any kind of new intervention or anything that's going to prevent pharma from being good capitalist organizations. They've already accounted for that in their business plan. What it is is sort of a distraction from the larger political economic system that made all of this possible. The, the role of capital in our healthcare system, which is just obscene. Our peer countries in Europe and Canada, etc., don't have the level of market-driven healthcare that we have. We're unique in that. We're the only country other than New Zealand that permits, for example, direct-to-consumer marketing of pharmaceuticals. Every other country has said that's crazy to, <laughs> to market dangerous pharmaceuticals to consumers that don't have any clinical training and take that decision-making out of the hands of people who have clinical training. Um, so so that's, that's one thing that I think is not necessarily going to help so much as to file lawsuits against pharma. I think that what's going to help is to focus on the way that pharma works within our political economic system, the power of pharma as a lobby in this country, the fact that pharma is, and healthcare provision together, make the largest economic driver in our country. And that's one reason why it's so hap, so incredibly capital intensive and powerful we as voters need to closely track that because it's a very quiet process but i think farm and healthcare are driving our political system not the other way around and the, and one of the results of that is our current opioid epidemic so that's the kind of focus that i would want to see coming out of this and i do see more people banding together to take that kind of approach but we're going to have to pay a lot of attention to the racial division, potential racial division there, because that's only going to per- perpetuate the problem.
1: Thank well, you. thank you so much. That, that's a really great place to end, actually. And um, that was an incredibly thorough answer. So,
0: <laughs> Yeah, we want to thank you for taking the time to speak with us today thank you. about your work. And we'll definitely uh, let our listeners know where to come across more of your papers and more of your research Yeah, this is our ninth episode of the Top Rank Podcast. Again, this is Marcel. And this is Isabel. Uh, A few shout-outs. Sienna Fiquete, our producers in the house. Amazing. So thank you, Sienna. Thank you to Hassan at Red Bull Arts New York for being an amazing sound engineer. And also just shout-out to Red Bull in general for um, allowing us to... Ask our huge monstrous questions about life and society every month in their radio booth. So shout out to Red Bull.
2: And thank you for having me. This has been a great experience for me.
0: Well, thank you. Thank you. And until next time, alright. All right, bye. Bye. in my heart